Ain't that a story? Mmm, man. Preface with just just a couple of comments before we get started with that, with retelling that story. One is my job this morning, I sense as I prayed earlier, is just to have a conversation with you um, from where, starting wherever you're at. Uh, my job, much like Philip on the road to Ethiopia, is simply to come alongside you and say, what do you hear God saying to you at this time in your life? For some of you, this is a current conversation. It's going on this morning. And for others, it's old business, but it's unfinished business. You've not really settled the matter. So my job is simply to come alongside and have that conversation with you and then get out of the way and let God do what you and God want to do. Is that all right? And so this is only going to be a conversation. I have notes. Relax. <laughs> so, the, so the Philippian jailer said to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your house. Are you saved? Boy, it's quiet for a bunch of saved people. Mm. Is there any question, is there any word more central to the evangelical church than the word saved? It is used and overused, especially inside of evangelicalism. Strangely enough, when people convert to other religions, they almost never refer to that as getting saved. But when people convert to evangelical Christianity, we always consider it being saved. I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying that language is pretty unique to us. When did you get saved? How many got saved? Do you know how to lead someone into getting saved? These are the questions that have controlled the conversations in the reporting process in the church since I was, well, in the 1800s. <laughs> but it raises the question, what does it mean? It's, it's not a bad question. It's not a bad mission for, I think it is the mission of Jesus, isn't it? In, in his name shall be called Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. I came to seek and to save that which was lost, he said. The Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world, he said in John chapter 3, verse 17. And in John 12, he said, I did not come to judge the world, I came to save the world. So it's probably a good thing for us to say that our mission, or at least part of it, is to help God save people that are in this world. But it does raise the question, what do we mean by being saved? Paul says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. He says, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. He says, it is by grace you are saved. It's not your works. It's the gift of God so that none of us can boast. 
so it sounds like Paul is saying what it means to be saved is to believe in God or in Jesus Christ. But all that does is move the question to another word. Now we're asking not what does it mean to be saved, but what does it mean to believe? I'll pause. Exhale. And you catch up. Are you there? I think. Depends on where in the Bible you're reading. But if you were to take the question, what does it mean to be saved? And you were to walk with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And if Jesus were to begin with Moses and answer the question, he might say, to be saved is to be free. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, there are dozens of stories. But there is one story in the Old Testament that acts as the center to all other stories. And it's the story of the Exodus. The Exodus in the Old Testament is kind of like the sun in the solar system. There are lots of planets or lots of stories, but they all revolve around the telling and the retelling of the Exodus. This is why, I'm not making this up. If this were a class, I would bore you by proving it, but just take my word for it. This is why when you get into the Psalms, there is no event more referred to in the Psalms, which is Israel's hymn book, like the Exodus. The psalmists are continuously talking about what God did for his people in the Exodus. It says, come and let me tell you the works that God has done so you can tell your children. And then in dozens of Psalms, it makes either direct references or oblique references to this thing that God has done. One of them says, he just parted the waters. Another one of the Psalms says, he rebuked the waters. One of them said, he stood the water up like a wall. My favorite is Psalm 114, where using Eugene Peterson's translation, the psalmist said, the waters took one look at him and ran the other way. You see that? It's this vivid language that the people of God use for this day when God set his people free. So in the Old Testament, at least beginning with Moses, to be saved was to belong to a community of people that were formed by an exodus. You tracking? They sang about the Exodus the way Wesleyans sing about getting saved and the way Baptists talk about it. Everything came down to the Exodus. 
And Jesus did not ignore this. Jesus actually lived into it. Jesus was not just walking around uh, collecting a few followers that he hoped to make disciples. If you step back and look at what Jesus was doing, he was reliving the story of Moses. This is why he began with Moses on the road to Emmaus. This is why he said to the Pharisees, if you would listen to Moses, you'd believe in me. Jesus saw himself as a new Moses leading people out. Leading people who were in bondage to a life of freedom. He did not see himself as merely forgiving sins. He saw himself as forgiving sins on the way to freedom. So when we ask, are you saved? What we're actually asking is, are you free? And when people wonder how many got saved in our church, what they're really asking is, how many are free? I don't know whether that's the same number as the number who say that they're saved. You there? This is why I worry that we have lost the language when speaking of salvation. We have compressed salvation into a single decisive moment to a line that we step over and then we measure and count the number of us that have actually stepped over the line and consider them. But what I'm asking you is how many of that number are actually free? And when we ask ministers who are training to be ministers in one of them boards, uh, do you know how to lead a person to salvation? What we're really asking them is, do you know how to lead someone on the journey toward freedom? We're not asking you whether you know how to lead someone to make a decision. Salesmen can do that. We're asking you whether you know how to lead someone on their journey towards freedom. And this, this feels to me like much more than a single moment. To be sure, so you don't rise up. There are decisive moments along the way. 
but there are probably many and not just one. And, and last week, we started on what that journey looks like, saying that the exodus, this journey from bondage to freedom, looks like it has three movements. There's a season where we are in bondage, and then there's this season where God delivers us, and then he delivers us in order to unite himself with us so that we are not only living with God, we are living like God in true righteousness and holiness. We are, in the words of Paul in Colossians 3, remade in the image of our creator. That is the goal of salvation. All right, take a moment, breathe, rest, then I'll transition. Are you done? We said that this, this middle piece this season where God delivers his people, oh my, miraculously, probably involves a reckoning with the gods. God never just snatches people out of Egypt. He first destroys the gods that are part of Egypt's narrative. And after 400 years, also part of the Israelites' narrative. They have no other way of seeing the world. And so God must go through this process whereby he purges Israel from their own idolatry. And then having done that, calls on them to consecrate their firstborn, their priorities, their future, their legacy. Every family had one. And then following that, he asked Israel to show the courage to do outrageous things if he asked them to do them. And then to posture themselves toward a new way of life. And it turns out all of that is part of the deliverance process, which explains why so many conversions or salvations fail. Because people can make a decision to follow Christ, but if we never go back and confront the gods that are in our lives, they will follow us into the new life. And if we do not learn another way of living, in the way of God, we will constantly fall back into the old patterns of life. Does that make sense? So these three things are not happening in sequence. They're happening all the time in believers' lives. We are even this moment being delivered. And as we're being delivered, we are confronting the gods that keep rising up in our lives. And we are still learning what it is to follow in the new way of Jesus Christ. This is called the life of freedom. Now... Can we get to the message for today? I'll tell it fast because some of you are time conscious. 
it's this middle part. It's the, this, this magnificent story about how God comes down and he parts the Red Sea. I mean, is there anybody who doesn't know this story? Have you heard this story? Can I tell it anyway? Really fast. I just like telling stories. So it starts when uh, the Israelites start leaving Egypt. It says God does not lead them down the straight road. He led them down the crooked road. And they went out as an army marching boldly. That word, by the way, in Hebrew means high-handedly. It means in John Oswald's translation, they left Egypt fists raised in defiance. You can see them, can't you? 600,000 men, because only the guys were doing this, plus their family, and they're leaving like this, out of Egypt. Pharaoh finds out that he's lost his entire slave base. His economy already in shambles from the hail is gonna get worse. So he mounts up an army, 600 of his best tanks or chariots and thousands of soldiers and they march in columns toward the Israelites who are moving into a wilderness region. It says in chapter 14, they were hemmed in by the desert. And now that they're hemmed in, the Egyptians are closing on them quickly. It says they were, in chapter 14, says it again, they were marching out boldly, high-handedly. And then they heard the sound and the rattle of war. There on the coast of the sea, they turned around and they could see the cloud of dust that was rising from the chariots and the horses, and they went into panic mode. Chapter 14, they started to cry out to God. It's the same word that's used in chapter 2. When they were slaves, they cried out to God that he would do something to help them. And before God could say anything, they turned and found the leader, which was Moses, and they started ganging up on him. And one of them said... Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Didn't we tell you to leave us as slaves in Egypt? Well, no, actually you didn't, but I see your point. They said it would be better for us to go back to Egypt and live as slaves than it would be to die here in the wilderness. Can I pause for a moment in the story and tell you what I think is happening because I think it's here we find ourselves. One, it sounds like the people of God are having a problem, not just with fear, that's obvious. They're having a problem with their identity. They do not know who they belong to. 
And so they are tempted to go back to the only owner they ever had. And that was the Pharaoh. This is a problem of identity. This is what allows them to cry out for freedom all the while they're inclined to go back to slavery. Any one of you that has tried to help somebody come out of bondage knows this moment, do you not? Have you ever been in conversation with someone who is trying to break free from an addictive behavior or from a substance or from an abusive relationship or from an emotion or from a circle or a gang or from a pleasure? Somebody who's been in bondage for a long time such that it has formed their identity. Now you're standing in front of them telling them they can be free and they want it and yet they are inclined to go back to the very thing they want to get out of. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? This is a crisis, not a fear. It's a crisis of identity. We don't know who we belong to. And so we keep living like the other guy. The second observation is that it is in this moment, standing in the wilderness, crying for deliverance while turning to run back. They prove that they are not only addicted to bondage, they have lost their imagination. They don't even have language for freedom. This is why they only say there's two options. They said there's one, we go back as slaves, or two, we die in the desert. And if you're reading this, you want to say, no, wait a minute, there is a third option here, but you can't see it. You're so terrified in panic that you can only think about what's comfortable to you. You cannot even imagine God doing something. And this is what allows you to pray even while you run back. You don't even have the faintest idea of what freedom looks like. Freedom to you is just a softer, kinder Pharaoh. Let me stop preaching and get back to the story. It's at, that, it's, it's, it's at this moment, the people of God, stuck in the wilderness, hemmed in by their conditions, hearing the rattle and the fury of what is behind them, failing to see what is in front of them that Moses presents a third alternative, an alternative future. Moses says, in effect, wait a second. There is a third option. There is either slavery in Egypt or death in the wilderness, or Yahweh can deliver us 
and we will be free. So Moses standing in front of the people tells them to do the thing that is counterintuitive to those who are terrified. He says, do not fear. To those who want to run back, he says, stand firm. To those who are trembling on the inside, he says, you must only be still. To those who are paralyzed, he says, get ready to move. Moses presents them with another alternative. He said, Yahweh will fight for you. These Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh will do the fighting for you. You need only stand firm and be quiet. Couple of observations. Is that all right? One. Faith in a moment like this is, um, is the courage to believe that despite your situation, God still has a way out. Courage is the willingness to do little things like move forward. That ain't a lot. When the easiest thing is to stand in panic. Courage is the capacity, the faith is the capacity and the courage to do whatever Yahweh asks you to do to cooperate with your deliverance. The granted, it's not everything. It's not even much, but it's not nothing. So contrary to Moses' statement, which is, you don't need to do anything, just stand still, Yahweh then speaks and says essentially, well, not quite. You do need to do something. You need to move forward when you are tempted to stand still. So faith means obeying God in seemingly small ways when it aligns with God's road to freedom. Are we clear on that? Back to the story. It's almost over. It is in that moment that Yahweh then does something, well, you couldn't miss it, I guess. Once the people have finally postured themselves to march toward the sea, Yahweh lifts the cloud from in front of the people and he moves it to behind the people. And in this subtle act, God draws a clear separation between Egypt and Israel. 
There is now a separation between those who want to go back and those who want to go forward. From this moment on, they are not the same anymore. There is a cloud that God has put between them. From this moment on, the Egyptians will only be moving in the darkness and the people of God will continue to move in the light. They will never be mixed again. Yahweh then tells Moses, hold up your staff, speak to the water and divide it. Interestingly, doesn't say I will. He says, speak to the water and divide it. Moses says, right. <laughs> but because faith is the courage to do what seems outrageous, he lifts his little hand and speaks with his little voice to a sea that is vast and he starts to move. And in the early Jewish writings, it says that the water never moved until they did. One of the early Midrash writings said they were into the water. It was up to their nostrils and then God parted the water. So you start to get the picture, don't you? You don't sit there until God does everything. You obey even when God has done nothing. And as you obey, God moves the waters. They go through the sea on dry ground. All oh, the waters took one look at Yahweh and ran in the other direction. And once they were through the sea, the Egyptians in hot pursuit, Pharaoh blind with rage and power, pursues them into the heart of the sea, exactly where God wanted him. On the other side, Yahweh says to Moses, now lift up your staff and speak again to the water. And he does. And when he speaks, the walls of water start to fall on the Egyptians and every one of them is drowned. Don't cheer. Don't cheer. And this magnificent chapter ends in verse 30 and 31 by saying, On that day, Yahweh saved his people. And his people believed in Yahweh, it says in verse 31. And they believed in Moses, his servant. So what does it mean to be saved? It means for God to perform a work that is miraculous and full and final to separate you from the things that hold you in bondage, whether a person or a power. And what does it mean to believe? It means the courage to do what seems outrageous in the moment just because God has told you to do it. It means the capacity to have a still 
calmness, without murmuring or striving, while you wait for God to do what he said he would do. You all right? This is why um, this conversation between Jesus and his, well, between Jesus and those who believed in him is so unnerving. It's unnerving. To those who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, the word literally means to move inside and to settle down. If you live in my teachings, you will be my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they said, nah, we've never been slaves to anyone. Well, if you don't count Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Philistia, and Rome, sure. We've never been slaves to anyone. Jesus says, but anyone who sins is a slave to sin. But whom the Son sets free, they are free indeed. And they say, we are Abraham's children. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you'd hold to my teachings. But you don't. Thus you prove you're not Abraham's children. And this little chat that began pleasantly ends with Jesus calling them illegitimate children and children of the devil and them calling Jesus demon-possessed. You can see why this is a rattling text. You wonder how it is a conversation between Jesus and those who believe in him can end so incendiary in just a matter of minutes. And it ends because there's a fundamental difference on what it means to be free. Deferring to their lineage, they assume they are on the other side of the Red Sea. But knowing that bondage is enslavement to any person or power, Jesus knows that they are still on this side of the Red Sea. And there is nothing more pathetic than a slave who thinks they are free. Why would they ever leave? Which brings the question right back to us. I think the way to go out this morning, well, let me just ask you. One, what is it or who is it that you are still in bondage to. 
What person? What behavior? What default? What pleasure? What image? What substance? What relationship? Still has control over you. What do you hate to love? Would you bow your heads? We're almost done. But I want to help you find the space for you to answer that question. What is it that still holds me back? If you can just put down the evangelical categories of saved or not saved and just ask yourself... How free am I, really? And if God will help you and you have the courage to identify the power or the person that is holding you down, go there for a moment. Here's my next question. What impossible thing is God asking you to believe? <laughs> and why is that so hard? Tell him. Just tell them. Just say, because third question. If you were to believe it, if you could believe it, what little thing could you do right now to prove to God? that you believe. What little thing would signal to God that you are ready to go forward instead of back? I got one more question. Who are you going to tell? Who will you let hold you accountable? Who will you ask to go with you 
in this journey to freedom. Who will you let hold this in confidence? You cannot go alone. Well, the story is fun, isn't it? But clearly God is speaking to his people today like Jesus did to his people in his day. And if God is speaking to you about bondage to any person or anything, power, would you have the courage to take the first step now and either stand and move to the aisle or stand and move to the front. I have a passage of scripture that I want to read over you. I've selected to read over those who are in the Exodus, those whom Christ is leading out. One more time, those of you that are steeped in this tradition, the question is not, are you saved? The question is, are you free? To what extent are you free? To what extent do you truly believe? That is the question this morning. Do not let the question of saved or not saved get in the way right now. It's a different question that I'm asking. Oh God. Set your people free. You have not given them a spirit of a slave. You have given them the spirit of a son or a daughter. You have made them in error. So give them the courage and the discipline to live into that. All right. Hear then the word of the Lord. Those of you that are standing or kneeling, listen to Yahweh. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then in that freedom and do not let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. For he has shattered the yoke that burdens you. He's broken the rod of your oppressors. He will remove the burden from your shoulders for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the freedom from sin. So you are no longer controlled 
by your old nature. You are controlled by the spirit of God who is living in you. And if the spirit is living in you, he will give new life to your tired bodies. And when you are led by this spirit, you will not be a slave to fear. Instead, this spirit will make you a child of God. You are no longer a slave. You are a son. You are a daughter. In fact, you are an heir of God himself. By that same spirit that is alive in you and where the spirit of Yahweh is, there is freedom. There is freedom. Let the church say, Amen. There is freedom.